0: Welcome to Pound the Rock, The Score's NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfon, and I'm in studio, as always, with Joseph Cacharo. What's going on? What's going on is we are three games now into the NBA Finals. The Raptors did what they had to do and took care of a badly shorthanded Golden State Warriors team last night team that was missing clay thompson kevin durant and kevon looney the raptors go into oracle and regain home court advantage in the series with a 123 to 109 victory withstanding a pretty transcendent performance from steph curry you know just a total team effort and they go in they shoot 52 45 95 for the game hit 17 threes and every time it seemed like the warriors were chipping away or Threatening to make a run to get back in the game. The Raptors had an answer. And now it seems like they have maybe regained control of the series a little bit. But obviously, the health status of those Warriors looms large and could tilt the scales once again anytime in the next couple of days. So I'll start with last night's game, Cash. What were your takeaways from that? And if we're talking about what the Raptors did in that game and we're thinking about how it might look against a healthier Warriors team going forward is there anything you saw that you think is particularly sustainable
1: no not on the defensive end because you know while they didn't go box and one or anything quote-unquote janky on the defensive end they clearly focused all of their attention on Steph Curry and as we predicted they were a lot more attentive and sharp regarding some of the off-ball stuff and Guarding cuts and things of that nature, so they didn't let non-Curry guys get going either. But for the most part, all of their attention was on Steph, and they were daring other guys to beat them, and quite frankly, no one could other than Curry. And I'll just say, that what Steph was able to do last night, like 47 points on 40 individual possessions, is really efficient. It's not like absurdly efficient, but it's really yeah. efficient. And A- considering against the pressure that exactly, he was facing. considering the pressure he was facing by an elite defense completely engineered to only stop him, and for him to still do that was just incredible but yeah defensively i don't think there's anything to replicate there even if they get clay thompson back let alone if they get kd and clay back Mm -hmm. on the offensive end the raptors did a lot of good it was basically the difference between like a very balanced attack and a one-man show right because that's just the way the game went um Typical Kyle Lowry, after a bad game, says he's going to come out more aggressive and literally from the jump comes out more aggressive, draws a shooting foul 24 seconds into the game, gets them on the board with some free throws. Key thing with Lowry, when he's in one of those moods, is to look at the fouls drawn because in each of these games this postseason, when he's had a bad game and then come out and said, I need to be more aggressive, he's actually followed it up by leading the Raptors and drawing fouls. It's like the only games this postseason, someone's been higher than Kawhi. So last night Lowry draws seven fouls. No other Raptor I think drew more than five. And then just in general, like the the way they diversified their attack, they made a point to get Marcus all involved early. And I thought Mark did a good job of rolling a lot more consistently on the catch instead of either popping or looking around. He was very decisive, getting the ball off a of screen and rolling, and that forced Demarcus Cousins to defend in space. And hey, guess what? Demarcus Cousins couldn't defend in space when he was healthy, let alone when he's like a year removed from blowing out his Achilles and a, a month and a half removed from blowing out his quad. So that worked for the Raptors. I thought they did a good job of, with Pascal Siakam, getting him some offense through like cuts and things like that. And it was a little less predictable than it had been in the first two games. So... Obviously, Danny Green hit six threes. Fred VanVleet hit a couple more circus shots. Like some of those things are obviously not sustainable. But for the most part, I just thought I liked the way they diversified their attack. And then Kawhi ends up with 30 points on 17 shots. And it was like a quiet performance. But they didn't necessarily need him to go beast mode because they had this really balanced, smart attack.
0: Yeah, so a lot to unpack there, uh, but I'll start with this. The Warriors big man rotation in dire straits right now. And just actually like an hour ago, there was reporting from ESPN's Tim Bontemps that Kevon Looney might actually end up returning at some point in this series. Apparently he needs to have more testing done before that determination can be made. But you know, based on that report, there is a chance that we see him again in this series, which would be huge because... As much as the Warriors clearly missed Klay Thompson at the offensive end last night, their offensive rating was 110, better than it was in game two. Their defensive rating was 124. The Raptors completely picked them apart. So I want to look at that a little bit because a lot of interesting things jumped out at me. One is that the Raptors only attempted 14 shots in the restricted area. That's a first percentile rate in terms of the percentage of their shots on the whole. And I think that speaks to the fact a little bit like You look at the rest of their shooting splits, they go 7 for 11 from mid-range, 9 for 19 from floater range, and 17 for 38 from three. That's just a great shooting performance, and you could say that's not especially sustainable, but I think what it points to is the Warriors' bigs are not especially mobile. Bogut and Cousins are both, you know, going to prefer to drop back and just try and deter shots at the rim, which they did, obviously. You know, even if they aren't absolutely mammoth rim protectors the deterrence factor is still there they're big bodies who if they drop back can prevent you from getting those shots near the basket but they're not very good at defending in space and i thought this was actually the best that the raptors pick and roll offenses looked in this entire series using that pick and roll to great effect whether you know like you're saying it's gasol on the roll ibaka finally got a couple of pick and pops that have been absent for him for the last couple of games both of those guys, actually, I thought, made great reads on the four-on-three. Something you expect from Gasol, but not necessarily from Ibaka. But he made a couple nice passes out of the short roll. And Kyle Lowry, as he tends to do, just throwing some really, really good pocket passes to get those guys involved in that pick-and-roll offense. So I thought they did a very good job of that. I thought Kawhi did an excellent job of attacking those Warriors bigs in the pick-and-roll. You know, whether it was Bogut or Cousins or Jordan Bell, he was able to get going against those guys when, when he was able to get downhill. And like you said, I mean, he had a pretty rough first half when the Raptors were running, I think, maybe a little bit too much of their offense through him and him initiating those possessions. And I thought they, they kind of transferred a lot of those possessions to Lowry later in the game. And when Lowry was initiating, I thought it actually became a lot easier for Kawhi to get his offense going uh, when he could either, you know, be involved in some second side action or catch the ball in the post, get involved as a cutter it just eased the burden on him a little bit and you know he proved that when he isn't basically tasked with controlling the ball from the start of the possession, the Raptors offense can be a little bit more fluid. And I think that showed through with their 30 assists on 43 made field goals, which is I think their best assist percentage of the series so far.
1: In terms of their shooting percentages, so since the three point line came into play in the NBA in the late seventies, think of not only all the finals series Think of all the finals games within all those final series over about four decades now. This was one of only three times in that four-decade history that a team went 50-40-90 in a finals game. What the Raptors did last night. The only other two teams to do it, uh, the 2017 Warriors against the Cavs and the 1986 Celtics against the Rockets. So... Sustainable, not sustainable, obviously probably not sustainable, but what a team offensive performance that was literally like a once in a generation kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And I'll say, I think there's still some process stuff that they should probably be trying to clean up. Um, they, you know, Kyle Lowry talked about this after the game. Uh, I think Nick nurse talked about it as well. They just talked about how important pace is to their offense and getting in a good rhythm and a good flow. I still think they haven't been doing a particularly good job of that. Like they, they, take a lifetime to get into their sets sometimes. And what's been a big bellwether in this series, and this is something that John Schumann of NBA.com has pointed out repeatedly, is how often are they getting those shots to drop late in the shot clock? Game one, uh, the last seven seconds of the shot clock, they shot 18 for 29. Game two, that number was six for 22. Game three, it was back up to 12 for 24. And so their late clock offense, I think they got bailed out, or they bailed themselves out with some pretty incredible shot making. And I think it, a perfect capstone to that was that shot that Fred Van Bleet yeah. made. The that ridiculous rainbow jumper uh, right before the shot clock rang out. And um, that was one of 16 shots that they took in the last four seconds of the shot clock in that game. And And the Warriors, by comparison, took just five shots in that same scenario. So... Even still, like the Raptors are going to have to do a better job of getting into their sets a little bit more quickly because the shot-making that they showed in this game is not going to be there for no. them in the future. So, And
1: the fact that the Warriors are pretty consistently forcing 22, 24, mid to high 20s um, attempts that late in the clock is probably a good indication for their defense. I want to talk about their defense last night, too, and just the way Clay's absence actually affected them on that end because it, jigg- it rejigged their matchups a little bit. Like The Warriors found defensive success in the second half of Game 2... By going Clay on Kawhi, yeah. moving Iggy to guard Siakam, which kind of neutral—not kind of it—neutralized Pascal and threw him off a bit. And then they had Draymond on Lowry, and Draymond did a good job on Lowry. But Lowry also wasn't aggressive in Game Two, so it allowed Draymond to kind of thrive in that roamer role. Without Clay in Game Three, they had Draymond on Kawhi. They kept Iguodala on Siakam for most of the game, but when Iguodala wasn't in the game, Siakam started breaking free again. And just then, absolutely
0: cooked Jonas Jurekko. Yeah,
1: exactly. What, Jonas Jurevko was not guarding Pascal Siakam. Yeah. Now, Lowry might have come out more... He probably was going to come out more aggressive anyway, but still not having Draymond on him obviously helped. So just in general, everyone obviously knows Thompson's offense and what they were missing, but him missing on the defensive end was big for them too. He's probably their best on-ball defender and it just... The way it messed with their matchups affected them all night like there was a bunch of times in the second half where some defensive miscues lead to Steph Curry alone on an island literally guarding Kawhi Leonard in the post and it ended the way you'd assume it ended with and ones and easy buckets so they gotta get clay back not just to help ease the burden on Curry on the offensive end but to like get their matchups right on the defensive end again or else again the shooting isn't sustainable but the way the Raptors can pick apart this undermanned Warriors defense is sustainable.
0: Yeah, and that's sort of what I was saying. It's like obviously they missed Clay on the offensive end, but I think they missed him just as much yeah. defensively, and that was where they lost this game because yeah. a 110 offensive rating is again pretty good. Uh, if their defense can hold up against the Raptors, which they showed that it could in in that game too. You know, that said, the Raptors also had a really poor shooting performance in in game two, so this wasn't exactly a regression of the mean. It regressed well past the mean. Uh, the pendulum swung completely in the opposite direction, and I, I mean that's just you know the make or miss league element of all of this is like uh, sometimes you're going to hit shots and sometimes you aren't and in the crucible of a playoff series it's not necessarily about process sometimes it really is just about results and those shots were going down for the Raptors in this game Danny Green hit six threes Uh, Fred Van Vliet again hitting some big ones Lowry finally breaks loose and hits five threes of his own Marcus All being assertive offensively I think was a really big thing and that's something that I think, can be repeatable because, look, he was just going straight at Cousins, right? And and sometimes it was him attacking him in space, catching the ball on the roll. Sometimes it was just him going at him in the post. He drove past him on the baseline for a dunk. He has a 26% usage rate in this game, which I, I would have to go back and look at his game logs, but that seems to me like its highest... Maybe as a raptor, maybe in the postseason so far, and they were just running a lot of stuff through him, and he was rewarding them by either you know hitting those little turnaround bunnies or finding cutters or making those plays, those those kickouts off of the short roll to to corner shooters. So I thought involving him more in the offense was really effective and can continue to be effective against his patchwork Warriors front line. So
1: let's assume. Well, I guess we can't assume that they're both back in Game Four. I think I think we can safely assume Clay's back in Game Four. I think there's like a 50-50 chance KD is back. Draymond sounded pretty confident after the game about the Warriors' chances, which led me to believe both are coming back. But let's assume the Warriors minus Looney are otherwise healthy for game four. How do they match? Like, how do you see them matching up? Because in the regular season, they had KD on Kawhi, just because like from a length perspective, it made sense. But then, I don't know, even if KD's back, do you still put Klay on Kawhi's, given the success you saw him have in game two and, and find
0: another place to stash KD? I think... I mean, they'll they'll juggle their lineups a bit, but I think maybe KD coming back and playing his first game in, what, a month now? Yeah. You probably want to spare him the full-time assignment on Kawhi, especially just given how physical Kawhi plays, how he dips his shoulder and can really just muscle his way to the rim. I don't know if you want to put that kind of strain on Durant in his first game back. So he might see some possessions on Kawhi, but I... I think that that wouldn't be his primary assignment, actually, and maybe maybe he's a good matchup for Siakam. See, I was thinking you can too. match him with size and length, right? And again, it's like you've seen how other teams have have stashed their center on Siakam and had them hang back and try and meet meet him at the rim. And Durant has the length to do that, so maybe that's a good assignment for him.
1: Yeah, and I think the the interesting thing with that is that most people would hear that and think, but well, wait a minute, like Siakam's this fast break monster, and if. KD, it's his first game back. Do you really want him running on this? Like, but
0: Well, they're going to end up with cross matches in and, transition But it's anyway. what you
1: just mentioned. It's Guarding Siakam isn't about running with him in transition. Because if he's getting out in transition, it's probably not a guarded possession anyway where you're matched up. Right. Guarding Siakam is about actually hanging back, daring him to shoot and protecting the rim, which would actually save KD's legs, right. and he's got the length to match it. So I think... Yeah, we're K- obviously...
0: We're talking about matching up in the half court. Yeah, right? exactly. So. so
1: KD on Siakam, I think, is the move to make, and Clay on Kawhi is the move to make. Now, if they go death line up to start, I guess you can't put Draymond on Larry, because then who the hell is guarding Marcus Um Right? Well... Or do you put like Iguodala on Gasol? And yeah. J- yeah. Yeah. I, I guess you could do that. Dr- Maybe you put Draymond on Lowry, you put Iguodala on Gasol. And yeah. Then- I mean,
0: look what the Sixers did, right? They that- guarded Gasol with Tobias Harris when, when they slid Embiid onto Siakam. Yeah. You have, you can put a small on Gasol, and he's not that much of a threat to scoring yeah. the post. And, yeah. and Iguodala is strong, man. Yeah. Like, I think you, you might have to send some double teams if he catches the ball deep enough. But I think Iguodala is strong enough to kind of push him out a little bit and maybe you can play that straight up and not get burned too badly because Gasol just hasn't really been good at finishing at the rim this year as much as he had a good offensive game in Game 3. It just like really isn't his bread and butter at this point. He hasn't been able to take advantage of those post-mismatches and so often even when he does score it's like he's turning and fading and shooting over guys rather than actually just backing them all the way in and, and putting them in the basket. So... I actually think that is a good alignment and one they could totally get away yeah. with. And again, and Draymond on
1: Lowry has had, has been successful for them on the defensive end too. And then you end up just hiding Steph on Danny Green, which his six threes aside last night is, is the safest bet because despite what he was able to do in that one regular season game when they kept posting Curry up, he has not been able to do it in the finals. Like no. It's been wretched. When Nor do Green, I
0: think that that should be something that the Raptors a, look exactly. to
1: Exactly. So I think you can hide Steph on him and not have to worry about that clearly. So yeah, that's probably the way it matches up if the Warriors are healthy. KD on Siakam, uh, Clay on Kawhi, Draymond on Lowry, Iguodala on Gasol, and Steph hiding on Danny.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting. You know, we're just t- talking about all this from a defensive point of view, right? It, yeah. Obviously, their offense is going to be greatly helped by getting those guys yeah. back, but I think the defensive end is going to be just as important. And you know, there's a lot of di- like interesting things that they could do with Durant at the defensive end, obviously his health permitting, but. Um, it's just it's just so weird because how do you even talk about the series how do you talk about the matchup how do you talk about trends and patterns and what might or might not carry over without having any assurance of what the warriors are going to look like from one game to the next it just makes it so hard to actually dissect this stuff because we're basically talking about two completely different teams i mean the the, the, the sense seems to be that clay is going to play game 4 um You know, the reporting has been that he really wanted to play, pushed to play, and that the Warriors medical staff basically overruled him. And, you know, whether it was trying to protect him from himself or take the long view and say, look, this is going to be a long series. We can let this one game go. And I'm I'm not saying they punted the game. I I think they probably still believed that they could win. They played their asses off. Absolutely. And... Again, if the Raptors don't have the shooting performance that they do, we might be having a different conversation right now because Steph Curry scored or assisted on 63 points. (laughs) He was insane. And uh, the Warriors shot four of 15 on wide open threes. I mean, like, this game could have gone a different way. But I think this is the right approach for them to say, like, you know, we're going to give you a couple extra days to heal. And we fully believe, even if we're down 2-1, if we can get you and Durant back, that we can still win this series. And I think that's right. They still absolutely can. And it's crazy to think, like, if Looney actually can make it back, all of a sudden we could be looking at a Warriors team that has its full complement of players at some point in this series, which is just wild to think about, uh, given all the attrition that they've been dealing with. And again, it just, you know, it goes back to what I was saying. Like, I don't know what even to look for in future games, because I don't know what the Warriors team is going to look like, and I don't know when we're going to have that information. It seems like, just like we saw in this game, and just like we were talking about on our last podcast, they're going to drag this out as long as they can and avoid giving the Raptors any intel until they absolutely have to.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting that Durant, you know, Steve Kerr said the whole time that he needed Durant to get one five-on-five practice in before playing and you know now it's kind of like desperate times call for desperate measures he still hasn't practiced they're saying today thursday he's going to get some work in it could be five on five or three on three with third stringers and team staffers and that might be enough to get him in so it's interesting how things have changed given their backs are kind of against the wall now obviously can't go down three one going back to toronto
0: yeah i mean they, well, they could they could don't get me wrong. The if Warriors very much
1: could, but obviously they would prefer not to. Like no one wants to be down three-one going on the road.
0: Yeah, and I mean, if Durant doesn't play in Game Four, I just, I don't know, man. Like at that point, it just seems like our, like they're probably not going to bring him back at all. I, I, I have to think. Like I guess maybe they go down three-one. There's two days off or, between or the Game they, Four or, or, five. or they bring Clay back and manage to win that Game Four, and it's two-all, and they can bring him back at that point, but. The clock is ticking, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a very real chance of them going back to Toronto in a three-one hole, and at that point, you know, even if Durant does come back and play, to be on the road in a closeout game and what is going to be an absolutely wild scene yeah. in Toronto, like uh, I, I mean, I think. I guess what I'm saying is they would really, really like to have him back in game four. And if yeah. he doesn't play in game four, I feel like that's a pretty bad sign for, for, for sure. the Warriors.
1: For sure. But again, two days off between games four and five, I wouldn't rule it out. If if he misses game four, I wouldn't rule out seeing him in game five, even down three one. Mm-hmm. Another thing I want to bring up too is I thought it was interesting and it was it was a lot more subtle than his box and one decision in game two but I thought the decision to start Fred Van Vliet in the second half was a a really um, kind of fascinating one from Nick Nurse and it's Danny Green's defended Steph Curry awesome like he's defended him off the ball really awesome but Fred Van Vliet has literally defended Steph Curry better than anyone else in the association has this season and Danny Green had three fouls Fred Van Vliet had two and I've said it before like I I hate the fact that it's not just in the NBA it's pro sports in general I hate the fact that for the most part coaches they won't make certain adjustments or decisions that are probably the right ones when things are going well, when things are rolling. Because it's like, well, we're winning. You don't make adjustments until you lose. I go back to Booneholzer waiting until they were tied 2-2 to, to bring Brogdon back when it's something we were talking about after game one when they were up one nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's like, well, they're rolling. They're winning. You don't adjust things yet. So even though it was like a really subtle thing, I really liked that move from Nick Nurse. It's like, yeah, we're up 8 at the half. But A, it's the Warriors, and you can never be too careful. Danny Green's got three fouls, and I'd prefer Fred Van Vliet to guard Curry from the jump. So you know what? Even though we are rolling for the most part right now, I'm going to tinker with things and start Fred Van Vliet to start the second half. It also worked out well for Danny because he he had a hot shooting hand all night. And by the time he came back in the game late in the third quarter, yeah, he had three fouls, but the threat of uh, foul trouble wasn't looming over him as much because you pick up your fourth late in the third quarter. It's a lot different than picking up your fourth a minute into the third quarter. So... A very subtle uh, adjustment, but I thought a very uh, astute one, and again, I kind of want to say, uh, gutsy's a, the wrong word, but uh, the type of move that I don't think a lot of coaches make.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I think uh, on its face, it just seemed to make good intuitive sense, Agreed. just sort of like we were saying about that box yeah. one. Uh, you know, Steph, I think, had 25 points in the first half and was doing the majority of his damage against Kyle Lowry and Danny Green, and and... He was doing damage against Van Vliet as well, but uh, Van Vliet was certainly able to hold him in check uh, more so than any other Raptors defender was. So they've been playing him starters minutes all series. They've been trying to match him with Curry as much as possible anyway. So I think, you know, starting the second half in that alignment was perfectly rational. And to be honest, I'm a little curious if they'll just start him in game four. And, And... I know like Green started every game for them, every, every game that he's played for them this season. And like you're saying, that's sometimes a tough thing for a coach to do when you've just had something that's been working to this point. And especially, uh, you know, when you're managing players and their egos and trying to keep them in rhythm and all this stuff, it can be tough to make a decision like that and know whether it's going to work out. But I think they've basically gotten to a point where they're almost completely tethering van vliet's minutes to curry why not just go all out and and make it a full-time thing where van vliet is curry's shadow he's his primary defender and you're basically hard matching their minutes I, i think that might make some sense
1: yeah it could i guess the one concern is if you if you start fred um who's kind of running the second unit i mean I guess Fred would play, if he's shadowing Curry's minutes anyway, he'd be playing enough minutes that it wouldn't matter. Yeah, no, and I think
0: think then, you know, first of all, you start with two ball handlers on the floor, Yeah, uh, three if you include Kawhi, um, and then maybe Lowry comes out earlier than than usual and you have a a Lowry and bench unit, which have always been very successful. You have Lowry playing a little bit more with Ibaka, which really tends to get Ibaka going. I don't know. There's a lot of interesting things that Nurse can do with his rotation, but I'll just agree with you and say that he's really been pushing all the right buttons for the last two rounds, Uh, and another one was riding with Ibaka, frankly, for what must have been like a 10-minute stretch in the third and fourth quarter after Serge had frankly looked unplayable for the game up to that point. I mean, he had no touch around the basket. He was committing some silly fouls. He was gumming up the Raptors' offense. Just That's how you know good surge is about to come out when he looks unplayable. It's actually crazy. Like the, the the rapidity with which he went from looking unplayable to looking like the most dominant player on the floor was actually insane. And I think he blocked five shots in the second half yeah, alone. He had six blocks total. One of them should have been a goaltend, but... Yeah, yeah, the block on Cousins was absolutely a goaltend, but... Um, an unbelievable chase down block on Quinn Cook. Who Danny got, Green had a, an unbelievable chase yeah. down block. And I think I was Quinn it Cook on back to back possessions? It was like, yeah.
1: Quinn Cook got blocked three times in four possessions, and two of them were on like phenomenal
0: chase downs. Yeah. So Ibaka goes from looking unplayable to having a stretch where he just floated to like another astral plane. He he had a putback. He hit a pick and pop jumper. Uh, he grabs an offensive rebound. He has multiple blocks at the defensive end. I mean, he just suddenly was pillaging the Warriors. And that run, as much as anything, uh, was a big part of the reason the Raptors were able to pull away late in that game. And just another example of Nick Nurse having his finger on the pulse and somehow seeing that coming, uh, leaving Gasol on the bench. And Gasol did come in to finish the game. But that that stretch from Ibaka was absolutely huge.
1: Yeah, I think what we're seeing too with Nurse is, you know, like, he was touted as this uh an innovator, I guess. And a lot of people saw that as, like, an offensive thing. And so when, you know, they ended games with a Kawhi ISO or when they'd come out of a timeout with ISO, like, people would kind of pick on that and be like, well, this guy was supposed to be an innovator. Where is it? But... I think it's, these, it's more like within the margins and these small things where like that's where you see how innovative a coach is. How willing is he to adjust even when things are going right? How willing is he to break out the first box and one the NBA Finals has probably ever seen? You know, it's like things like that to me are what make a coach innovative because in terms of the sets you run and things like that, like no one's reinventing the wheel here after 100 years
0: of basketball, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I think... Um... Sometimes those decisions can backfire. Of course. And we do tend to look at these things through the, you know, a hindsight driven lens and uh, it's important to recognize that these things can go any which way and I think uh, you know that cuts both ways. Like when a decision goes wrong, it's important I think to try and find the rationale behind right. it and say, "Look, this didn't work out, but it was worth trying." And when maybe a questionable decision works out, well, same thing. It's like, you know, this worked out, but the rationale behind it didn't make a whole lot of sense. But I think for Nurse, uh, the last little while, I think it's been a combination of both, right? Like he he has made decisions that I think are justifiable, and those decisions have really worked out well for him. So uh, a really good coaching performance. And um, I think, you know, not that... Like we've talked a lot about the moves the Raptors have made to get them to this point, the Kawhi trade, the Mark Gasol trade. We haven't talked a ton about the decision to let go of Dwayne Casey and to, to promote Nick Nurse, you know, internally. I think not that there was a lot of second guessing of that decision, but I, I think definitely some people, myself included, honestly, was like if you want to make a clean break from this era of Raptors basketball that's run into a wall repeatedly is, is hiring someone from the staff, you know, a guy who's been there, for this entire run, like, is that the right decision? Like, is he really providing a new and fresh enough voice to actually get you to a different level? And and that decision is another one that has just been wholly justified.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I, now in hindsight, it's like I'd love to have been a fly on the wall for – what I think was like a multiple hour interview, the second interview that Nick Nurse had with Masai Ujiri, where he reportedly basically laid out his plan for the entire year from like training camp to the finals of how he was going to manage a team, which at the time did not have Kawhi Leonard, Danny Green, or Marcus. Gasol. It's like, you really wish, like forget about, you know, the the insider knowledge Woj knows about like trades about to happen. Sometimes I almost wish to be a fly in the wall more for that kind of stuff. You know, like what went down in that coaching interview between Nick Nurse and Masai Ujiri that convinced Masai Ujiri Nick Nurse could do exactly what he's doing right now.
0: Right. And if Jackie McMullen's reporting is to be believed, that meeting convinced Masai Ujiri to hire Nick Nurse instead of Mike Budenholzer. I think our assumption has been that Budenholzer chose the Bucks job and then the Raptors moved on. And I think that was the first time I've seen it reported that it was actually the Raptors who decided to go in a different direction, which... (laughs) Again, if true, it's just amazing that, that the symmetry with which yeah. that worked out, where Nurse ends up coaching against Budenholzer, I think outcoaches him in the conference finals. Coaches circles around him, man yeah. like, um, so it's just it's just wild to think about like all the different decisions and and everything that went into putting the Raptors where they are right now, and they're they're two wins away from a championship. It's it's pretty wild. Yeah,
1: these final two though will be difficult, a nightmare to grab. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download The Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news.
0: Let's move away from the game itself right now and, and talk about, uh, well, something that happened during that game, which is Kyle Lowry mm. chasing a loose ball, going into the first couple rows of courtside seats, and getting shoved by uh, not a fan, it turns out, but an actual minority owner of the team, a guy named Mark Stevens, who... Look, I'll be honest, I was not familiar with Mark Stevens beforehand. I don't really know anything about him. I don't know what his ownership stake in the team actually is. But he gives Lowry a pretty sharp shove uh, while Lowry is in the stands. And then, according to Lowry afterward, also directed some vulgar language towards him. And he was obviously very upset about that, um, you know, motioning to the refs that he had been pushed, wanting Stevens to get thrown out, which I believe he was. And since then, the uh, the league and the Warriors have announced that he's going to be banned for any further finals games this year, which is a maximum of two games anyway. Uh, do you think that punishment is enough? Or do you no. think there needs to be further discipline? No, there
1: needs to be... This guy needs to be removed from his ownership stake. Yeah, he's I an agree. ass clown. Full stop, okay? <laughs> First of all, this like old dude with these khaki pants and sneakers that's like shoving Kyle Lowry because he, like so many fans... Um, knows that he is in a quote-unquote safe environment where he's protected by rest security guards whatever because i'm pretty damn sure that lame-ass khaki pants mark stevens isn't shoving kyle lowry to his face in the middle of the street you know where there's no one there to protect him and i just this is what i hate about the whole fan interaction thing it's that like fans can take these well technically they can't take these liberties but they do once in a while and this happens and and obviously the players can't do anything about it. And I understand that. And I'm not advocating for violence, but it's like, man, like sometimes you really do wish like these players just had, I'm not saying like to really hurt them, but just like oh, one clean shot at fans <laughs> like this, because that's, he, that's you know that's, what you're
0: suggesting for the discipline? That no, 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 that's not the, the discipline he has to that, stand in and just take a punch. That, from that would Kyle actually Lowry.
1: be awesome discipline. As long as we can guarantee that there was like no catastrophic injuries, yeah. uh, but no, we don't think, advocate
0: for violence no, on, on Pound the rock. No, but. we don't.
1: Um, but I think, in all seriousness, I think the punishment should be a forget banning him for the finals. Like it's going to be like minimum of he's banned from the arena for all of next season, if not for life. But I think they should actually strongly consider, like he's a minority owner anyway. Who cares? Yeah. Strongly consider removing him from his ownership stake.
0: I hundred percent agree with that. I think he should be forced to sell it. I just think this is bad enough when when fans do this sort of thing. But when it's somebody who's actually affiliated with the home team, I, I think, at least optically, that's worse. And uh, you know, for the Warriors, I I don't think that they should uh, you know have any interest in maintaining any sort of affiliation or partnership with this guy.
1: I'm pretty sure, like 99.9 percent, that if it was an average fan who did that, they would get a lifetime ban from the arena. Mm-hmm. Like, well, without it, without question, there so, was a
0: fan. It was it was a kid, is a thing, right? That fan who reached out and, and put his hands on Russell Westbrook and Westbrook kind of scolded his dad, yeah, and. I think in that case, it's like, okay, the kid, you know, you can argue just doesn't really know better, but this is a grown ass man and he absolutely should know better. And it's not like, it's one thing to put your hands out when a, when a player is coming at you yeah. to try and break their fall or to protect yourself. This guy was, you know, three or four seats over reaches reached over to, to give Lowry a shove for no reason. And again, if Lowry is to be believed also yeah. swore at him. So it's like, I just, there's no place for that. And I I don't think this guy should be allowed to be the minority owner of a team.
1: Yeah, or even allowed in the arena again. Like there was the lady that, I don't know if he was with her, she first of all she actually interfered with Kyle Lowry's ability to keep the ball yeah, in. She, bounds. she
0: went out and reached so for the ball. That
1: was bad enough. But,
0: but she she, she, <laughs> she was took then, the brunt of that. She hit. took the brunt
1: of that hit and then she was like just the typical road fan that's like patting the opposing player on the bo- like on the back cuz almost like, "Oh, it's okay, like good effort kind of thing," which mm. in itself, you know, you probably you shouldn't be putting your hands on players anyway, but at least in that case she was just like, "Oh, I'm patting an NBA player on the back for like a good hustle play and like almost trying to help him up." What he did is Just asinine. And again, you just, yeah. Never step foot in another NBA building again, please.
0: Um, Okay, one more thing uh, that happened last night was Paul Pierce admitted live on air that the famous wheelchair incident during game one of the 2008 NBA Finals was simply uh, an emergency bathroom break. What did you make of that? So, okay, I saw this and I saw everyone going nuts,
1: but then I thought after the game, Pierce re himself to say um, that it was kind of like a joke or it wasn't that's <laughs> he was kidding yeah because he ended up tweeting sorry to bust y'all haters bubble but the only poop emojis i did june 5th 2008 was on the lakers hashtag facts and facts at least he knows set. how to
0: use emojis yeah, properly now
1: yeah. Um, So I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether to believe him. I don't know whether he was trying to be funny. I don't know if he was telling the truth and then was like, hey, I don't like that this like ruined one of my legacy (laughs) moments. I got to go clear this up. I don't know. I will say either way, it's a fascinating twist and subplot now to this already fascinating finals memory of Paul Pierce leaving in a wheelchair and returning not 15 minutes later trying to like give Boston a Willis Reed moment.
0: Yeah, but like... I mean, it's it's just been like a piece of sort of shadow NBA history for so long because he, the story at the time was like he thought that he had torn an ACL. Like he landed weird, thought he heard a pop, felt a bit of a twinge in his knee. And, you know, his teammates had to carry him into a wheelchair and he had to be carted off. He looks to be in excruciating pain. And then not 10 minutes later comes skipping out of the tunnel and finishes the game like nothing's wrong. So you know obviously that is where the sort of conspiracy theory was born and (laughs) he hasn't spoken on it for all this time and and for him to to come out and i mean either joke about it or admit it live on tv is uh i don't know it's just like a hilarious moment and and for those uh paul pierce pooped himself truthers uh a pretty vindicating moment
1: have you ever seen the uh we're going off topic now, but have you ever seen... Um, I don't remember who it was. It was like a famous soccer player that once legitimately soiled himself in the middle of live play. I don't think so. All right. Well, that's something for our listeners to YouTube at some point after uh, listening to this <laughs> podcast. But yeah, that the Pierce thing's funny too, though. Because the, re- the reason I thought he was joking is because like you mentioned you know, him landing. It looked like he actually might have legitimately hurt his knee. Like... I don't know. If if he legitimately had to use the washroom, are you telling me he was sitting there thinking like, man, I need a moment to happen in this finals game? In my first finals, I need a moment to happen where I can feign injury so that I can go to the back and relieve myself. Like,
0: I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying it might be preferable to having to play like... I don't know how long, like, when it happened or how long it would have been until there was, like, a like A, a break It couldn't have been that long. But, like, to play however many possessions with just full drawers like that? I mean,
1: <laughs> I feel like he risked losing it anyway by the way he, like, gyrated potentially faking an injury. Like, I don't know. I feel like we're getting really deep into yeah, this. Yeah. Uh,
0: we'll, we'll have to devote an entire episode at some point to unpacking it. We can get Paul Pierce on. Yeah, let's hope. Um, but for now, um, the Raptors are up two one in the finals. Cash, what are your predictions for Game Four and for the rest of the series? Whew.
1: I'm sticking with Raps in seven. Okay. Um. See, I I'm assuming KD. Uh, sorry, Clay is back. Maybe not KD. But I have this like feeling that the Raptors are actually going to go up three one, and it's just going to take them three chances to actually get it done. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, that won't be stressful at all for Raptors fans. Um, I I see the Warriors scraping out game four. I think it's going to be really close. I do think Klay is going to play. I think he is going to be slightly compromised. I don't know if he's going to be able to guard Kawhi. I don't know how effectively... He, I mean, like movement is so much a part of his game, right? And running off of screens and just getting open for those catch-and-shoot threes. I think it's going to be really difficult for him to do that with with a hamstring injury and the risk of re-injury with with a hamstring is like so high I, I just I don't know it's it's going to be really difficult but I, I still do see the Warriors pulling out that game for um, I, I expect him to come out and play with a ton of desperation and even the series and again it's just it's impossible to say with with KD's status being up in the air like this but um I'm going to stick with my prediction as well. Raptors in seven. I, I'm, Who knows what twists and turns that series yeah. has in store, but um, for now, again, the Raptors are two wins away from a championship, and they got to feel pretty good about where they're at.
1: Yeah, I'd say smart money is on the Warriors winning game four and basically just the home team winning every game until at least game seven.
0: Yeah, so there you have it. Um, that was game three. Uh, this is where we're at right now. Lots to still be determined on the health front. And um, we'll be back to talk to you guys next week, uh, presumably Tuesday after after, after game five. Friday, yeah, after game five. Uh, so we will talk to you all then. For now, we're signing out. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolf on We're Coming to Rock.